please take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 1. I just began last Lord's Day, what will be a series of messages through John's first epistle. So I'll continue that this morning. And I'll read this morning, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1, and going through chapter 2, verse 2. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world." This section I just read is arguably the next section after the preface in John's epistle. In fact, I'm looking at my uh, version of the New King James Bible, and it has that all one paragraph from chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. But just because of time constraints, I'm just going to try to make it through chapter 1 this morning. Let me share some observations with you that I have as a Christian man and as a pastor and as a preacher of the Word of God, and especially in the case of my observations as a Christian man, I could say they are very personal observations, and they are these, or it is this, that is that it is a painful, demanding and often discouraging thing to squarely and directly face one's sinfulness and to deal with that in a biblical way. 
my observation as a pastor of 30 plus years is that it is a very common problem among professing Christians that they shrink from that work and often refuse to do it and even excuse that refusal. And as a preacher, my observation is that this passage here from 1 John 1 verse 5 to chapter 2 verse 2 is perhaps one of the best passages in the Bible to deal with this problem. And if it's your problem, then be alerted that this is potentially what could be one of the most helpful passages in the Word of God for you. But as we begin to look at it, let's ask God for his help in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would indeed give us light today from that word by the work of your Holy Spirit, even as the scripture proclaims here very clearly that you are light itself. Help us to see the light this morning. Shine the light upon our hearts this morning and help us to flee not from the light but to the light through your son the lord jesus christ and it's in his name that we ask amen well let's begin by looking at verse five and this is the first point first heading that i have and that is the message and the message is that god is light notice verse five John says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. First of all, we can notice about this, verb, this verse that John is basically saying here, there's one, one, one of what would be many legitimate ways to summarize the gospel message, because he starts out in verse 5, this is the message which we heard from him and declare to you. They heard it from Jesus. Remember chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. One legitimate way to summarize that message is right here, that God is light. And John chooses this summary, of course, for a purpose and we'll see what that purpose is as we go on. But that's his summary of the message. God is light. And of course, therefore, John is speaking here in figurative language, symbolic language. He doesn't simply mean God is light in the sense that these lights are shedding light, but he certainly means it that there's some similarity there between God, who he is, what he's like, and the light that comes from these lights or the light that comes from the sun. And in the Bible, it can mean many different things to say that something is light or um, this is light. Let's just turn to one passage, John 8, verse 12, to remind you that many of the things that we read in 1 John can be illuminated, if you will, by reading parallel passages or statements in John's gospel, and vice versa. But in John 8, verse 12, we have one of those statements where Jesus says, I am the light. It says, then Jesus spoke to them. He was in Jerusalem speaking with the Jews, 
debating the Jews, really, answering their accusations against him. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And there are some of the ways that um, some of the, the uh, meanings of that phrase light or I am the light or God is light that are evident here. For instance, one of the things is that um, light is synonymous sometimes in the Bible with life. And we can think of that in terms of the sun shining. If the sun didn't shine on this earth, I guess I'll say not just probably, but we would all be dead, wouldn't we? If the sun were extinguished, based on everything we know scientifically, all other things being equal, we would die and in a hurry. So in the Bible, there's light is like life. Jesus says at the end of this statement here, he will have the light of life. And then, it also means knowledge sometimes. We speak about being enlightened. Or we say, when you said that, finally the light went on. So it can refer to knowledge. Jesus says, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. Sometimes if people don't know something, we say, you're really in the dark about that, aren't you? And in the Bible, sometimes light means knowledge. But it also means a morally upright life. It can refer to right living and right conduct. As it says here in verse 12, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. And so here in that statement, walking in darkness, walk means live. It's the way we live. It's a biblical metaphor or use of language. And that's the emphasis here. And so the focus, especially in 1 John 1, verse 5, is upon God's holiness. When it says God is light, doesn't mean to exclusion of the other things I mentioned, but he's especially focusing on that. John is saying in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light in the sense that he is holy. And he states it this way, he is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, as the prophet said. There's no, the sun does have spots. God does not. There are no blemishes in him, no moral blemishes. He is perfectly holy. As we sang in the opening hymn, the angels adore him, all veiling their sight. Why? Because he is holy, Holy, holy. He's not just full of majesty, but the thing that especially uh, um, uh, captures his majesty is the fact that he was, is without any moral blemish. And so the angels, it says, the seraphim cover their eyes with two of their wings. So that's what John is especially pointing out here. And then let me just anticipate what comes. John's argument in this passage, starting out with God is light, is like this. He's stating a biblical principle in a sense, or he's, he's um, uh, capitalizing on a biblical principle, which is this. Whenever we can say this is who God is or this is what God is like, that tells us something about how we should aim to live, right? Right? I teach that to my ethics class, the seventh graders at TCS. 
I teach them that the standard for ethics is God himself. Ethics means the standard for the way we live. And I say the standard is God himself. It's first his will, what he says in his word, but also it's his character, what he is like. So if we can say what God is like, then that tells us how we should live. You have that in Leviticus 11.44. In chapter 19, verse 2, we won't take the time to turn there now, but these are very familiar statements from the Word of God. They say at one point in those verses that you shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy. In other words, this is how God is, therefore that's the way you must be. We had that a couple of weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount, or a few weeks ago. Be perfect, for, I, the, for the Lord your God is perfect. You should be what He is, or at least you should strive to be that way. There it's patently stated in Scripture, in Leviticus 11, and in Leviticus 19, and in Matthew 5, and other places in the Bible. John is using the same reasoning here. God is holy that means there are implications for your life and for mine. And he uses this figurative language of light. And then, notice secondly, the three perversions of John's message. We have the message, God is light. The three perversions of it, they're in verses 6, 8, and 10. And these are perversions that the false teachers that plagued the churches to whom John was writing were guilty of love. We don't know exactly who they were. I used the phrase last Lord's Day, proto-Gnostics. There are people called Gnostics that never really came to a full identity till later in the second century. So we can't say these were those people because John was writing probably still late in the first century. But these were their forerunners, if you will, were their uh, ancestors, theologically. And they like to talk about light. And they like to say, we have light. And we have light that other people don't have. And John says, well, God is light. And here are some of the implications for your life. And here are some of the reasons the way you think and the way you speak and the way you teach are wrong. And especially they had to do with ethics and morality, the way we live, whether we are holy people or not, godly people. Think of Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians 6 where he's going to denounce immorality on the part of Christians, even in the church in Corinth. And he says, you know, the food is for the body and body is for food, but they're both going to perish ultimately. And they were basically saying, so it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies, and Paul was saying, yes, it does. And John was saying something very similar to these people. Paul had warned that in the last days there are going to be false teachers. And he says they've already begun to show up. And John is saying that as well. You see that in 1 Peter 2. I won't take the time to turn there. I'm thinking of, excuse me, 2 Peter 2. At the beginning of the chapter, the first two verses, and then verses 18 and 19. But let's turn to 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19. Because some of these people had shown up already in Asia, and to, in the churches to whom John was writing. So he says in 1 John 2, 18, little children, those are the believers, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. In fact, since it's only a page or two away, let's just turn back for a moment to 2 Peter 2 and see some more about some of the false teachers that the apostles were combating in the latter part of the first century. 2 Peter 2, 18 and 19. Speaking about these heretics, false prophets, he calls them in verse 1 of this chapter, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through licentiousness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, you don't have to worry about the way you live. They themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. These people have moral problems, and they pervert John's message. Let's see the three ways they do this. First, verse 6, not walking the talk or not walking the walk. I hear it both ways. It means you may say something, but you don't live that way. It takes us back to Matthew 7, which we read a bit ago, in which Jesus said, you people are hypocrites because of the way you live. You want other people to live a certain way, but you don't yourself. You're hypocrites. Well, here the idea is you say something is true about yourself, but it's not. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, that's God, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, we say we have fellowship with God. Well, John says God is light, but you're walking in darkness. You're like those false teachers of 2 Peter 2, 18 and 19. They say they're free, but they're slaves of corruption. That's the idea here in verse 6. I'm a Christian. I know God. But we don't walk that way. We don't live like a Christian. And so John is saying, well, then you're not a Christian. It's more than just a profession. And John, notice how John says it in verse 6, and he does it in verse 8 and in verse 10. If we say, and John doesn't separate himself from all the rest of the people to whom he's writing, He's, he's just the same as the people in the pews, not like the Gnostic teachers that say, we have a higher knowledge, we're not just common Christians. No, John says, if we, even an apostle, says one thing but lives another way, he's not real. And he says there in the last part of the verse, in fact, we lie and do not practice the truth. We should practice the truth. We should walk the talk but John says, nope, you don't. I'll put it in the simplest of language for the young kids. Kids, if you say you are a Christian, but you don't live like one, you're not. And I'll say it like John, because it's not just for the kids. If we say we are a Christian, but we don't live like one, we are not. That's the first perversion of John's message that John of, of his message that he corrects. Second one is this, verse eight. It's denying having sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So imagine someone saying, "If you could follow me around all day, 
and watch my life, and if you could see into my heart, you would see very clearly that I do not fit the description that Jeremiah gives of the human heart in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful and it's desperately wicked. My heart is not. I have no sin. Imagine a person like that. Sin isn't in me. It hasn't corrupted me. Like everyone else is corrupted by sin, but I'm not. Some of you who are old enough to remember We had a president back in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan. He had various nicknames, the Gipper, because he used to be an actor. Another one was the Teflon president. And I think it was maybe his um, detractors that gave him that name because they tried to throw mud at him all the time, and their frustration was it never stuck. And this is what John is addressing. People who say that they live in this world and and they were born of Adam, and they walk through this world, etc., but nothing's, sin never sticks to them. They don't get tainted by it. They have no sin. Or maybe they're saying this, well, you know, it's not like I've never sinned, but I'm a Christian now. I'm forgiven. I don't have to worry about sin. Don't talk to me about my sin. I'm forgiven. God doesn't worry about it. You shouldn't worry about it. I certainly don't. That's the idea. I remember my wife telling me many years ago, she taught Sunday school back when we were in Minneapolis, and if she ever pointed out some misbehavior to this one particular student she had, she would, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. That's wrong. The student would look away and say, I don't want to talk about it. That's the idea here. And John says, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about sin. And here's what needs to be said about it. If that's your attitude, we have no sin. He says in verse 8, first of all, you deceive yourself. You're fooling yourselves because you're lying to yourself. You do have sin. Everybody does. I'm an apostle. I have sin. If I say I don't have sin, I'm deceiving myself. And the second thing he says there. In verse 8 is this, and the truth is not in us. That's a way of saying you're not a Christian. The truth does not dwell within you. So I'll put it simply again. Kids, if you say you don't have any sin, you don't want other people, you don't want your parents, you don't want pastors, you don't want any friends, any teachers telling you that you do have sin, John says you're not a Christian. In fact, he says you're lying to yourself. You don't have the truth in you. And then there's verse 10, a third error that John is correcting here, and that is denying having ever sinned. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Some writers say that this is really a repetition of what we have in verse 8, but probably John changed his wording ever so slightly because he was trying to get across an ever so slightly different point. So that in verse 8, the the person could be saying something like, well, of course I, I sin. By your definition of sin, I break God's law, but now that I'm a Christian, sin doesn't stick to me anymore. It doesn't adhere to me. 
and I don't therefore need to concern myself with it. Or, or he would be saying, verse 8, when it says, we have no sin, I used to sin, but now I have this special knowledge and I can live above sin. There have been various people throughout the history of the church who have taught this kind of thing. John and Charles Wesley actually taught that. Perfectionism. But here in verse 10 where he says, if we say that we have not sinned, the claim is that people deny that they ever sinned. Tell you another story I heard about a child once. Someone said to the parent of the child, you know, your child was sinning here. And the parent said, and this wasn't in the first century, this was the 20th century. Professing Christian parent. Well, my child doesn't sin. That's the idea. 1 John 1.10, John predicted it all that time ago. He saw it with his own eyes. He heard it with his own ears. And what John says here about such people who say they never sinned is, number one, they're making God a liar. You see it? We make him a liar. What John means there is because God's Word is so clear about this. You're, you're a child of Adam, right? Well, we know from Romans 5, as well as many other places in the Bible, if it, because Adam sinned and if we're his sons, we sinned. We sinned in him, the Bible says. In Romans 7, Paul talks about himself, a godly man and an apostle. He says he struggles with sin every single day, just like you and I. So John's saying there, you, whoever you are, are a sinner. And if you say you're not, you're calling God a liar. And then he says, similar to what he said in verse 8, the truth is not in us, he says, and his word is not in us. You have no spiritual life. You haven't embraced the word of God by faith. You don't have God dwelling in you, the, the Spirit dwelling in you. You don't have Christ dwelling within your heart. As we heard from Colossians 3.16, the Word of God is not dwelling in you richly if you think that way, and especially if you talk that way. Again, I simplify here. Kids, if you say that you have never sinned, the Bible says, then you are not a Christian. And worse... You're calling God a liar. So there's the second or third perversion of the message. Those are the three perversions of John's message. Third, let's notice the three corrections or solutions to these perversions. They're in verse 7, verse 9, and then chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So John is saying it this way. Instead of thinking that you're better than everyone else, instead of saying you're perfect, you have no sin, or you've never sinned, instead of saying you're all that, the greatest people ever, after Christ himself, instead of being so proud, instead of thinking like that and talking like that, talking foolishness like that, Instead of saying, I don't need to worry about sin, here's what you ought to be saying. Here's how you ought to be thinking. Here's how you should be living. First of all, verse 7. The direction he gives is walk in the light. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, God is in the light, he is the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So we should walk in the light. Again, what is walking in the light? Walking, in a biblical use of the terminology, is live. Live in the light. God is holy. Live a holy life. Keep from sin. Live an obedient life, life, following His commandments. Live out in the open. In John 3, uh, verses 19 and following there, it talks about people who run away from the light. They're like roaches. When the light gets turned on in the room, they flee. John's saying, just go to the light. It's going to show that you have spots. It's going to show you have darkness. It's going to show you're a transgressor. But don't run away from it. Live that way. Walk in the light as God is light. In fact, do that because God is light. Do that because of the way that God is. What will the results be according to verse 7? Well, it says we will have fellowship with one another. And the fellowship doesn't mean here, you will have fellowship with me, the apostle, like he was saying back in verse 3. But here he's lumping himself in with them. Himself in with them. We will have fellowship with one another. That is, with all genuine Christians. That's his point. We'll have spiritual fellowship with other Christians. If you take this prideful, out-of-touch-with-reality, heretical stance about sin and say you don't have it, it will separate you, in an ultimate way even, from true believers. That's his point. But also you will experience this blessing that the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, will cleanse you from all sin. I think that means forgiveness. Same way we'll see it in verse 9. And the power to overcome your sins. It's not just your sins will be wiped away in a legal way. That's forgiveness. But you will be cleansed from all sin. Your soul will be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ if you live a life of confessing your sin. And that's what we see in verse 9 here. So the first thing is walk in the light. The second thing is confess your sins. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here you see he separates them. The blood of Christ, the death of Christ has that kind of power to judicially take your sins away so that God won't hold them against you. That's forgiveness. But also to clean up your soul. Sanctification. As life goes on, if you're a real Christian, you actually get better. You say, no, I think I've gotten worse. Well, hopefully that's because you see your sins more and more, which also should be happening. But if there are faithful observers of your life from a biblical perspective, other Christians, they'll be able to help you and say, but you know what? I've known you for 20 years, and frankly, I think you have cleaned up your life more than you realize. It will happen if you're a genuine Christian. That's the idea. An Old Testament text similar to this statement is Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. I like to think of that as a, uh, an Old Testament counterpart to 1 John 1, 9. But 1 John 1, 9 
being a New Testament statement, is better. Better in a couple of ways. Number one, it's more specific. It tells us how your sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ who suffered on the cross. And it's better and that it tells us exactly what those blessings are. Not just you'll prosper, that general statement, but you'll have your sins forgiven and you'll have them cleansed from you through the blood of Christ. It puts it explicitly in gospel language. And this is true for you. You may have come in here loving your sins, not admitting your sins, not wanting to talk about your sins, not wanting anyone else to talk about them, not wanting them to talk about them while you sit there stuck in a pew and you don't want to get up right when the pastor says, you're a sinner! Because that would make yourself and your attitude pretty evident. The Bible is talking to you when it says these things. Not just that you shouldn't avoid admitting your sin, but also it tells you this if you're not a Christian sitting here today, that if you will simply confess your sins, acknowledge that you're a sinner, and ask God to forgive those sins, He'll do it. He's faithful and just to do it. He's promised to do it. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, will be saved, and God will save even you. Ugly as your sins may be, long as you may have lived in them, as much as you may not want to forsake them, if you do, He will forgive you and He'll cleanse you. Now, that's a painful thing to face, especially from your perspective. It's painful for me many days. And I've been a Christian for a long time. I don't envy you. Loving your sins, hugging your sins, and contemplating giving them all up, the things that make you happiest in all the world right now. But God says, if you do it, that's what John says, your sins will all be washed away. And frankly, this is the only way to have that happen. Through confessing your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. But I'll tell you what, there is nothing more freeing in all the world than confessing your sins and having them washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's coming into the light and that light is the light of life and you will begin to live for the first time if you turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ, His Son. Well, the third thing he says in terms of a correction and a solution is aim not to sin and remember your advocate. But like I said, we're not going to get to that till next week because that's in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So I'll just give some closing thoughts for now. You might think... I have no problem with this man's preaching. No problem, except for one thing. He talks about sin too much. Or he makes me feel guilty when he talks about sin. Or he points out my sins all the time. Or you may think, well, I, I really like this church in a lot of ways. I think it's very biblical. But they focus too much on sin if that's the way you think, this passage should make you examine your heart. It would be better for you to look at that this way. Well, I have no problem with the Apostle John, except he talks about sin like this. 
Or I really don't have any problems with the Bible, except it talks about sin a lot. I don't have any problems with God. But he's put a lot about sin in his word, the Bible. See, if you talk like that, you really do have a problem with the Apostle John. And you really do have a problem with the Word of God, the Bible. And you really do have a problem with God Himself. And that's John's whole argument. You don't want to deal with sin, your own sin. You're not in the light. You're in the dark. You're not a Christian. John has made this so simple, so plain, so straightforward, so indisputable, so unarguable, even a child can understand it. You're either with him, with John and the other apostles, or you're with the false teachers he's refuting. But if you think that way, you don't have sin, or you shouldn't have to deal with your sin, I urge you and I plead with you, don't think that way. Don't think like a first century heretic. Because you may move to the 21st century, but you're still a heretic in the way you think. Don't align yourself with ungodly, heretical people like those that the Apostle John is refuting here. Don't do that. Instead, confess your sins. Turn from them. Walk in the light, just as God is in the light. That's how to live as a Christian. That's the way of life. I want to close with a quote The quote is from a man you may or may not ever have heard of before, Charles Simeon. He was an evangelical Anglican, pastored in Cambridge, England, for, I think, 40-some years in the 18th and 19th centuries. Here's what he wrote. He said, I have never thought that the circumstance of God's having forgiven me was any reason why I should forgive myself On the contrary, I have always judged it better to loathe myself the more in proportion as I was assured that God was pacified towards me. His text, I'll just mention it, you can look it up later if you're doubting what he says, is Ezekiel 16, 63. He says, Nor have I been satisfied with viewing my sins as men view the stars in a cloudy night, that is, just one here and another over there, with a lot of space in between them. He says, But I have endeavored to get and to preserve continually before my eyes such a view of them as we have of the stars in the brightest night. That is, the greater and the smaller are all intermingled. And they form, as it were, one continual mass. I aim to see them not as committed a long time ago and throughout the course of many years, but as all forming an aggregate of guilt and needing the same measure of humiliation daily as they needed at the very moment they were committed. He's not saying he doubts the forgiveness of God. He's not saying that. He's saying he looks at it like Jesus did, who says part of our daily prayer, right after Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, what was his next petition that we should pray? Forgive us our debts. He says, nor would I willingly rest with such a view as as presents itself to the naked eye. I have desired and do desire daily that God would put, so to speak, 
a telescope to my eye and enable me to see not a thousand only, but millions of my sins, which are in fact more numerous than all the stars which God himself beholds and more than the sands upon the seashore. There are but two objects that I have ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own vileness. That's what he's talking about here. And the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have always thought that these two should be viewed together. Just as Aaron confessed all the sins of Israel while he put them upon the head of the scapegoat. And that's what we're going to focus our attention on, that scapegoat, next time, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But let's remember this. If you don't see your sins in that way, you won't feel any compulsion to go to Jesus for the forgiveness of them. Because you'll say, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to humble myself and constantly go to the cross of Jesus. Well, may God help us to think and to live better than these errorists in the first century. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask now that you would take your word and write it upon our hearts. Open our eyes that we may see the truth about your word, about yourself who is light and have no darkness in yourself, and then the truth about ourselves. False and full of sin are we. And help us to flee to the one who alone can cleanse us of all unrighteousness, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.